As Patrick said, it's the Christmas season, and it's exciting. Yeah, I, I love this time of year, primarily because my wife loves this time of year. And if she's happy, then I'm happy, and it works out wonderfully well. It is the second Sunday of Advent. As Matt and Jenny read, we are celebrating the Bethlehem candle this morning, that our Savior, our God, was born in Bethlehem of all places. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Now, it can be cliche or overused at times, but I always enjoy the movies or the TV shows where they begin at the ending. You have some scene of somebody getting shot or killed or something shocking happen, and then the screen goes black. And then words appear on the screen two weeks earlier or one year earlier or some, some time earlier. And it takes you back to show you the events leading up to that shocking moment. And so today I want us to pretend that we had never heard the story of the cross. So right now, close your eyes, think of the cross, and then erase it out of your mind. Pretend like you never heard the gospel, the story of the cross, and that we're about to watch a movie of it for the first time. So the opening credits have just ended, and an image of a dying man appears on the screen, this, this half-naked man nailed to a cross, bleeding and in agony. His pain is palpable. Blood covers his torn and pierced body. A crown of thorns has been forced onto his head. Its long knife-sized thorns having been driven into the flesh of his scalp. And you ask yourself the question, who is this poor, wretched criminal hanging on that tree? What great atrocity has he committed to be punished with such a gruesome, shameful death? A death saved only for murderers and traitors. We mustn't mourn this man's suffering. For him to be on this cross, he must have done something terrible. He deserves what he's getting. But wait, there's a a sign over his head. And what does it say? It's in some writing that none of us can understand. But at the bottom of the screen, the subtitles appear translating what it says. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. How odd that a king would be hanging on a cross. Is he really a king? No, he can't be. Man, how far he has fallen. And as this gruesome scene continues with eerie music playing in the background, you can hear it, can't you? A quote comes up on the screen from the Roman statesman Cicero, and it reads as follows. The very word cross or stauros in the Greek should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It is a most cruel and disgusting punishment what 
humiliation. What shame. Then everything goes black. The horrid scene is over. And as our eyes are trying to adjust to the sudden darkness which has filled the room we're in, words appear on the screen once again. Words which let us know that we have only seen the end of the story and now we will go back in time to see how everything transpired to get this man to where he hangs on a cross. The words read, 30 some years earlier. Then playing out before us as we watch this movie, we see the life of this one called the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. This man of sorrows who is the son of God. And where is this king of kings, this Lord of lords born? He's born in Bethlehem. What king, let alone what God, would choose to be born in Bethlehem? I mean, Bethlehem is Nowheresville, Judea. Yeah, I know King David was born there. I know that Micah the prophet prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But even that probably wouldn't have convinced me if I didn't know better. Bethlehem? Seriously? And yet, that is where our God, our Savior, came into this world. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't regal. It wasn't with pomp and circumstance. It was in Bethlehem, in a dirty stable to a poor carpenter and his young wife. What was God thinking Well, I'm glad you asked. Because God, through his servant Paul, tells us exactly what was on his mind in sending his son to be born in Nowheresville, Judea, Bethlehem. And so would you turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me, verses 5 through 8 and follow along with me as I read that verse and as you're turning there and then as you stand in honor of God's word if you can I will read to you from Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 now I know it's probably puzzling to you why are we turning to Philippians in fact Katie said to me before we got up here she said I'm so excited about today's message about Bethlehem I think it's so cool and I said well I'm not actually going to be reading about Bethlehem. And she said, what? I said, yeah, we're going to go to Philippians this morning. She said, Bethlehem's not in Philippians, as if I didn't know that. Um, So thank you, Katie, for your wise instruction. Um, And yet we're going to read from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. I'm reading out of the New American Standard Bible uh, this morning. And Paul writes this, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a, what is it? Cross. 
Please be seated. God, as we study your word this morning, as we look at it, would you instruct our hearts this morning from your wise and generous and infinitely knowing counsel? Would you instruct us that we might have that mind which was in your son as he came to us in flesh, dying on a cross, that we would have that same level of humility in everything that we do throughout our entire life as a response to the grace and humility in which you came to us. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Just like in those movies and shows where they show the ending first and then they jump back to the beginning. I want to start with what would normally be at the end of my sermons. I want to start with the application of the message. So I'm going to tell you how we should respond. Now, in brief, in general, God and by His Spirit will tell you further how you should respond to His Word this morning. But let me give you Paul's application, God's application that he gives to us through Paul, and let me give it to you first, and then we'll jump back to the truth that supports the application. So this is the first application I want you to take away this morning. And it's exactly what Paul tells us in verse 5. Have the same attitude of total humility which was in Jesus Himself. This is what it says in verse 5. And, and it's, it's very helpful as I preach on Sunday mornings. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you bring it, you can't go into a battle without your sword. We can't study God without His self-revelation of Himself, which is His Word. Have the same attitude, the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. When it says mind, it's talking about attitude or, or, or mentality or worldview, the same mode of function that Jesus had as he entered into this world and as he walked every day, his mode of function was humility. It was an attitude of humbleness through which he responded and reacted, responded to his father and reacted with people. Everything he did was in consideration of others and what would honor his Father in heaven the most. Humility and selflessness was the way of life for our Savior, and it must be the way of life for every single believer. In the Greek, this word, mind or attitude, whatever it says in your translation, is not merely a way of thinking, it means a way of living. Do you live? In humility, the kind of humility that Christ displayed for us. The second application I want you to get this morning is that humility in the life of a believer is a reflection of the heart of our Savior. Now this closely ties with the first application, but why is it so important? It's because humility in the life of a believer is a reflection of the heart of our Savior. If you look back to verses 3 and 4 in your text there in Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
which let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so you see that Paul is telling us that humility in the life of a believer is imperative. And in these verses that we just read, verses 5 through 8, it's not just a teaching of Paul's, it's not just a suggestion, it's not just some innocuous command based on Paul's authority. It is necessary in the life of every believer because it is a direct reflection of how Christ, our Lord and Savior, lived his life. Humility and obedience to the Father was the definition of Jesus' life. And so if we are to display Jesus to the world, if we want them to see him in us, because when the world looks at me, I don't want them to see Brian Parrish. I want them to see Jesus. If we expect to do that, then our lives must look like his. And the life of Christ was marked with humility. And so must ours. So those are the two pieces of application. Now let's go back in time, or back in truth, I guess you could say, to the truth that that founds this application. And so this morning, the rest of the time that we have left, I want to give you two degrees of Jesus' total humility, which act as an example for us to follow. Two degrees of the humility of Christ, which act as an example for us to follow. Now, we can't do what he did. Let me say that up front. I'm not telling you that you need to do what he did. I'm saying that your humility, your mindset, your attitude must be like his, which is exactly what Paul says to us. And so that the first degree of humility, the first example of humility we see in the life of Jesus Christ is that as God, Jesus humbled himself by denying himself his own rights and powers and taking on flesh. Jesus, as God, denied himself or humbled himself by denying himself his rights and powers, the rights and powers that were his. As God, he had every right to not come. He had every right to avoid the cross. But he denied himself those things. And he took on flesh. And so let's just go down our text this morning and just see it very clearly here. I'm going to let Paul speak for Paul, or should I say God speak for God through his word. It's very clear here. Starting at the first part of verse 6, Jesus existed in the form of God. Now this word form is the Greek word morphe. And Paul uses this word meaning form or shape to show us the sharp contrast between the, the initial existence of Christ as God in heaven with his earthly existence as a slave in humble flesh. He, Jesus, being in the form of God, took on the form of a servant. Now this word form can be confusing because you can say, well, he, he appeared to be God or he looked like God or he acted like God. That's what Paul is saying. And scholars use this to say, see, he wasn't really God. But the interesting thing about this word morphe is that it refers to form and shape 
but not form or shape in terms of what something looks like, but of those characteristics and qualities, the substance of what something is. The characteristics and qualities that make up something. The essential thing about a person. And so we could say he existed in the substance of God. All the characteristics that make God who God is, Jesus had. So Jesus is God. But we see in the second part of verse 6 that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. That's what the text says. So first Paul restates what he just said. Jesus, being in the form of God or having equality with God, did not consider that a thing to be grasped. And what does this mean? Well, the KJV says, thought it not robbery. I like that term there. He didn't take it for himself. He didn't take it to use for himself. What Paul means here is that Christ did not exploit or use for selfish purposes his rights and powers as God, but put them aside while on earth and did not take advantage of them. On earth, Jesus was absolutely God, but he put aside his godly attributes so that he could live as a person. Because so often we say, well, yeah, Jesus did it, but Jesus was God. So, So we can't be expected to live up to that level, that standard. And what Paul tells us here is, yes, he was God, but he didn't use his godly attributes. Jesus lived by the Spirit, the same Spirit that you and I have inside of us. And didn't Jesus, wasn't he the one that said, you will do greater things than you've seen me do? Because he didn't live out of his divinity, he lived by the Spirit in his humanity. Does that make sense? And Jesus had every right to use his power as God because he was and is God. But he didn't use his divine power to deliver himself from his, his fatal circumstances, but humbly, selflessly resisted the use of his power for us. So he was equal with God, but he didn't make use of his divine attributes while here on earth. What did he do rather? Verse 7, he emptied Himself. Now the common mistake here is to ask, well, what did he empty himself of? And, and over the years, many have debated what Christ emptied himself of as though he literally poured himself out. You know, Jesus was a little teapot, his spout, his hand on me over, and there goes my godly attributes. That's not how the song goes, I know. But, but Jesus didn't literally dump out all of the God that was inside of him and just get rid of it. Because when we talk like that, when we think like that, it undermines what we believe, that Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. He didn't get rid of his divinity. He just chose not to use it. Paul is simply saying what... or. or Paul is simply saying that Christ did what Paul said of himself in 2 Timothy 4.6. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. Christ poured himself out for 
He left his throne. He left the splendor of his home in heaven. He left his place of exaltation, his place of authority, his place of praise, adoration, and power. And he came to a place, to Bethlehem, to Israel, to the world, where he would be hated, humiliated, beaten, cursed, made fun of, ignored, whipped, and crucified. That is how he emptied himself. I like how the KJV says it. He made himself of no reputation, even though he came and his place was the highest reputation and honor. He left that and he came to the lowest and became the lowest for us. In fact, that's the next part of the humility of Christ. That as God, he became man. Jesus became fully man. Jesus tells us that, or Paul tells us that Jesus became a servant to the world by be, being made in the likeness of men. Now, once, a, once again, this word likeness can be misleading. He didn't become like a man. He actually took on flesh. He was 100% man, human. He said it of himself. This word like simply means same as. But what, and, and, and Paul was so brilliant in his crafting of his letters. If he said same as, then we would have to say, well, he's just like us, he's fallen, he's sinful. But we know that Jesus wasn't sinful. And so by saying like, in the Greek at least, Paul can mean he was the same as and yet he was different. He is like us in our flesh and humanity, but he is wholly dislike us in that he was sinless and in that he was still fully God the whole time. And so we see the first degree of the humility of Christ. The first display is that as God, Jesus took on flesh and became a servant for us. The second degree of humility. The second example that we see in the life of Christ is that as a man, Jesus humbled himself to die on a cross. We see this in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so what I want to do in closing for this point is Paul, once again, in degrees, shows us the humility of Christ. Now, those are the two main things I wanted to get. As God, he became man. As man, he went to a cross. But now let's look at the degrees of humility as Christ acted out his love for us. Once again, we see that God took on flesh. First, we have the pre-existent God of all eternity, past, present, and future, humbling himself by taking on this flesh. Now, let me ask you a question. Does everybody have flesh this morning on? Okay, okay. Clothes as well, thank God. We're good. You can pinch yourself and it, it hurts. At the end of the day, you get tired and at some point you need to go to sleep. 
Eventually, perhaps even during my sermon, you're going to get hungry and want to go to lunch. This flesh is limited. Now, for all eternity past before Christ came, he was not limited by flesh. Jesus never took a nap in that cool until he came to earth. I, I don't think he probably ever had to eat. Now, he may have. I don't know what happened in heaven, but he didn't have to eat. But he had to when he came here. He didn't get hurt. He didn't get sick. But when he came here, he did. And he was willing to do that for us. We are astounded by this news. Or we should be. Not only did he become a human being, but also he put himself at the bottom of the pecking order. And we see the next degree of his humility in that God became a servant of the world. He took on the form of a servant, as it says in verse 7. Now, what's the contrast between God of all heaven and earth and the lowest of servants? In fact, that word there, doulos, literally means slave. What's the contrast between the two? It is infinite. But there is more to come. He, he became everything that qualifies a slave. No rights, no honor, no possessions, no power, no prestige. No life of his own to do what he wanted to do. He was humble to obedience. The humility was in obedience to his father. He experienced fatigue, sadness, temptation, loss, and the cruelty of the worst kind. He entered this world not as Lord, which he was, but he entered as a servant. But that's not enough. We know the rest of the story because that God who took on flesh, who came as the lowest, as a slave, a servant to the world, what did he do? He died. Have you ever thought of that? God died. Now that's a conundrum. God died. He humbled himself by being obedient to death. What? You mean God chose to die? It's the only way God can be killed is if he chooses to. I mean, taking on flesh was radical enough, but he died? But it, it keeps going, doesn't it? He didn't just die. How did he die? On a what? A cross. A cross. That's right. Our God died on a cross. And not just, I mean, it wasn't just any death, it was on a cross. The thing that Cicero, remember the quote that I read to you, said a Roman citizen shouldn't speak of it, think of it, see it, or hear it. In fact, one of the Caesars at that time declared the word stauros as a cuss word, a curse word. It was illegal to say the word cross in Rome. That's how humiliating and shameful it was, and that's how our God chose to die. He died by execution of the worst kind. And I ask you this morning, what in the world was God thinking? I 
And now we go back to our opening illustration. The man on the picture dying on a cross. The criminal who we before thought we should not feel sorry for him. He must have done something very terrible to die such a death. But now it changes our whole perception of that scene. This bloody mess of a man on the cross is God himself. And as such, he had access to all the divine rights and powers, but chose not to use them. And the story, it now has its twist. It's taken shape. This is why this man's death is so important and so scandalous. He is the pre-existent God, and yet there he hangs on a cross. not guilty, then who is? Whose guilt put him there? It certainly wasn't his. He's the guiltless God. And the answer is, it's your guilt. It's my guilt. But do you know that God didn't go there because we were guilty? Even though we are, God went there Because he loves us. God the innocent died for the guilty because he so loved the world. It was my guilt that put him there. It was your guilt. And he didn't take himself down. He didn't take out vengeance on those who put him there. He willingly went there for us. He died so that we could be forgiven. He went to jail for us and was executed because of our crimes. His infinite humility took him to that place. And God did it for you. He did it for me. And I just think about what God was thinking, because there was a lot of time leading up to when Christ came. We know there was at least 4,000 years of history, but then there's all eternity past, and you wonder, what was God thinking? I keep asking you that question, because I want you to get what is on the mind and the heart of God. For all eternity past... God was thinking about something in sending His Son. And what He was thinking was how He could show the full extent of His love to you and to me. And the only thing that would come close to showing His infinite love would be such a shocking and scandalous act, one that could cause the world to cringe in horror as our precious Lord, Jesus Christ, who is now exalted at the right hand of the Father, who deserves all praise, honor, and glory, who is the Lion of Judah, the great I Am, that God was stripped, whipped, bruised, beaten, mocked, pierced, and killed on an old, rugged, splintered, shame-ridden cross. It was the only way he could show the extent of his love. And it was only by that that he could atone for our sins. The only way that we could be forgiven. And if Christ, God in flesh, was willing to do that, was was willing to go to such, such lengths and depths to show his love by displaying humility, ought we not be willing to be humble as well? That is the message of Bethlehem. In it we see the humility 
of a Savior, of a God who came for us. And in it we learn that we must also show the same humility. Did you know that humbleness is attractive? I've never heard anyone say, you know, that guy was really nice and was a really nice, arrogant guy. Usually it's he was an arrogant jerk. But the people who are humble, people say, wow, that that person just seemed genuine, sincere, so humble, and they didn't make much of themselves. People like humble people. That's why it's good for us to be humble. We want the world to come, don't we? And it's not because we want them to see our humility. We want them to see our Lord's humility. And so we point them to the cross. We show them how they can be saved through His name. But they must see it in us as well. It's how we reflect the heart of our Savior. My friends, how far down are you willing to go into obedience and humility to show the heart of your Savior? Are you fully committed to the Lord, come hell or high water? Are you willing to obey no matter what it costs? Jesus was. Our God, He was. Are you? He was willing to come to us in humility and die. And my question this morning is, will you come to Him this morning in humility? And live. Live by him and for him. There's a story that John MacArthur tells. He tells of the, uh, in Russia at one point there were tribes that roamed around the country. Just as in America there were tribes of Native Americans who, who roamed around looking for food. And usually the most powerful and wisest tribes with the most powerful and wise leader got the best lands. Well, he tells about this one particular tribe whose success in, in their prosperity was due to their wise and powerful leader. The leader was just. He was wise. He was caring. He was good. He was fair. But he was strict. And so he had very harsh laws. And two of the biggest laws that he put forward was that You must honor your parents and you must not steal. You must honor your parents and you must not take what is someone else's. And with those two primary roles, there was peace in the tribe. But then all of a sudden, people began to see that things were being taken. Robbery was taking place. And so they looked high and low to find out the culprit of these events. And to the surprise and the horror of the tribal leader, they found that it was his own mother who was guilty of the crime. And he had already laid out the punishment. The punishment was to be whipped, to be beaten, to be taken out to a pole in front of the whole tribe to see and to have the the guy who practiced and was good at what he did to come out and to beat the guilty culprit. And so now, the leader was in a hard place. Do I love my mother and let her go? Or do I uphold the law and punish her? 
and the man with the whip walked out to the pole where the mother was tied and he began to whip her. Stripes appeared on her back and blood began to flow down and not being able to take it anymore, the tribal leader walked out and said, Stop! Stop! And the big, muscular leader took off his shirt walked to his mother, wrapped his arms around her with his back between her and the whipping guard and said, put the punishment on me. Now my mother is honored. My love is shown. And the law is upheld. And in the same way, our Savior came to us, the innocent Lamb of God, He disrobed. And he put himself between us and the punishment. And he said, put it on me. Put it all on me. Now my loved ones are saved. My love is seen. And my law is upheld. My friends, that's what he did for you. And he invites you to come. To stand in His arms that you might be forgiven, that you might be free, that you might be saved from all this world has to throw at you. And ultimately, what God in heaven, who is a righteous judge, will bring upon all who are guilty. And that is all. But a loving, humble Savior stands ready for you to come. Accept His love, His forgiveness, and know the true joy of His coming.